0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu.
1: California eases its mask mandate. The CDC says it may be too soon. We have and continue to recommend um, masking in areas of high and substantial transmission. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Another round of paid COVID sick leave is approved for California workers.
2: The impact on workers who don't have the choice to work from home or have enough vacation or sick time to cushion this has been pretty profound.
1: We follow efforts to stop migrants drowning in the All-American Canal. And a Mexican artist imagines new forms of masculinity at her show in San Diego. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
3: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen.
1: By this time next week, vaccinated San Diegans will not have to wear masks inside most public places. County health officials say they will follow state guidelines to lift the mask requirement after February 15th. A sharp decrease in coronavirus cases from the peak of the Omicron surge is the reason for easing the mask mandate, but one restriction that is not changing yet is the requirement for kids to wear masks in school. State and county officials say they are working on that. Joining me is KPVS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Hi, Matt. Hey, Maureen. Now, how sharply have coronavirus cases dropped to cause health officials to lift the mask mandate?
4: Well, what we're hearing from state officials, the state health department actually, is that there's been a 65% decrease uh, in cases since the peak of the Omicron surge, and that was just, we saw that a few weeks ago too. Also, Maureen, the state is saying that, you know, hospitalizations, we know that there is definitely a lag factor from when cases come to when those hospitalizations come, and they say that those are starting to plateau across the state.
1: Unvaccinated people will still be required to wear masks, though, that must be hard to enforce.
4: That's going to be uh, very challenging for businesses to enforce. Keep in mind, and we've been here before too. You know, this other one was implemented in December. This mask mandate, the universal one, uh, when we saw cases sharply increasing, we had it there before. And yeah, we saw a lot of local businesses saying, "Hey, I don't want to be the mask police." You know, uh, the state did put out some guidance saying for businesses saying, you know, that they can choose to ask people. They can do a vaccine, you know, verification system. Say, "Hey, are you vaccinated? Uh, if not, you have to wear a mask." They can implement their own mask mandates. Um, But it's going to be tough for businesses to sort of choose, you know, uh, where they stand on this.
1: What are the exceptions? Where will vaccinated people still be required to wear masks?
4: Pretty much any public place that requires some sort of like transit. So we're talking about like airports. You know, every time you go on the airplane, you have to wear it not only when you're like getting your bag checking in when you're actually on the plane public transit so that includes things like if you're taking any kind of boating public transit or even like a trolley something like that or one of those sprinter trains Um, also includes things like hospitals long-term care facilities and some of that's due to federal regulations as well too so uh, there is still universal masking required in some places but obviously uh, masks can come off for vaccinated people in a lot of indoor places now.
1: Now Los Angeles County is not lifting its mask mandate next week is that right?
4: That is right. Yeah. Los Angeles County, they've sort of had this position for a while that they say that they are not going to be lifting their mask mandate. Um, and we know that the—you the, the, know when you look at the triggers and stuff like that, we're still in the red. You know, San Diego County even uh, showing that there's still a high transmission, even though cases have gone down, likely the same up there in Los Angeles County. Uh, but we have heard from our health department that they will be following the state guidance, that they will not be getting ahead of it, so to speak, or they will not be continuing with the indoor mask mandate.
1: I'm curious about what the mask requirements are for big events like the Super Bowl this Sunday.
4: Yeah, you know, there was a lot of attention paid to the last game that was there when the governor uh, was photographed without his mask a couple times. But SoFi Stadium, uh, they have some of their own requirements. That's where that game's going to be played uh, up there in Los Angeles. They require uh, either full proof of vaccination or a negative or recent negative COVID-19 test. Uh, Now, in addition to that, Uh, They say that masks are required at all times uh, during the game. And they say, obviously, that that that's because uh, of a Los Angeles County public health order. um, And that's unless you're actively eating or drinking.
1: Let's talk about masks for kids in K through 12 schools. What are county officials saying about that?
4: Yeah, so that mandate is still in place, you know, that still is there along with public transit hospitals, all that kids still have to wear masks in schools. And we know that schools have been a driver of infection, you know, not just for kids in general, but for kids taking it back home. And then we just heard here in San Diego County, uh, the chairman of the county supervisors, Nathan Fletcher, uh, he introduced a motion to have county uh, staff work with the state to try to uh, change these mask rules, to slowly phase them out. And he basically says, uh, you know, look, we've had a very high uptick in terms of at least first doses here in San Diego, more than 90 percent of residents that are ages five and over. Now, we know that some of that's been lagging for some of the younger kids. But he says, you know, now is the time that passed on a unanimous motion for the board. Um, and we have heard from the state that they say, you know, while they are implementing these changes in terms of the 15th that they recognize, and they are working on making changes inside of schools. So I would say within the next couple weeks, there could be some news in terms of masking inside of schools.
1: After California announced an end to the mask mandate, the CDC director in Washington says now is not the time to lift the mask mandate. Here's what CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensky had to say about it yesterday.
5: Right now, our CDC guidance has not changed. Um, We have and continue to recommend um, masking in areas of high and substantial transmission that is essentially everywhere in the country in public indoor settings. We continue to recommend universal masking in
1: our schools. Why does the CDC director say states should wait?
4: Well, Maureen, you know, she did an interview with Reuters where she talked about hospital capacity. And she points to that as one of the most important metrics that we're watching here. And we know, in San Diego County, in California, some of those hospital rates have been have been going down for COVID for sure. Uh, But she says, you know, nationwide, that a majority of hospitals are overwhelmed by COVID cases right now still. So she's pointing to that saying, look, you know, in, in majority parts of the country, hospitals are being overwhelmed, and we need to slow the surge. And we know that masks work, you know, there was that new CDC study that came out. So they're saying do everything you can still while we're still at high levels of transmission. Keep in mind, while the mask mandate is going away here in San Diego, we're still hitting the red levels for transmission. So it's still high. So she's saying we need to do everything we can to slow that transmission. And she points that in schools specifically saying that they're recommending that schools continue uh, universal masking.
1: To counter that, what are California health officials pointing to about why this is a good time to lift the mask mandate?
4: They're saying that the situation has improved and sort of uh, going in line with what they've been doing the whole entire time is they're following the science, following the data, Case rates are dropping in certain parts of the state and majority of parts of the state that they say, um, and they say now is the time. And it'll be interesting to see if there's any pushback or, or if there's any resistance in terms of changing the masking inside of schools. You know, we know we hear from a you know maybe a vocal minority of parents or maybe a vocal majority of parents uh, that they want to have choice, uh, but don't be surprised too uh, when you see these mask requirements go away on the fifteenth, Maureen. That a lot of people are probably still going to want to wear their masks, or you'll probably still see a lot of people wearing their masks, especially with transmission. Uh, Still being in those red levels.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS Health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you.
4: Thanks, Maureen.
5: This morning, Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law another round of paid COVID sick leave for California workers. The law provides workplace protections as well as two weeks of supplemental paid sick leave for COVID infections. Policymakers hope the added coverage for state workers will help suppress Omicron infections, just as California prepares to do away with its indoor mask mandate next week. Joining me now is Cal Matters reporter Samia Kamal. Samia, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you start off by telling us what was approved in this new deal by lawmakers?
2: So the leave policy requires companies that have 26 or more employees to provide up to 80 hours of paid leave for COVID-related reasons. There are some differences from the policy that was in place last year. For example, to get the vaccine or to recover from side effects, a worker would get just 24 hours off. Also, instead of getting the full 80 hours at once, a worker would be able to get 40 hours. And then for the second 40, they would need to show a positive test for themselves or for a family member that they need to stay home to take care
5: of. How have workers been faring since the state's previous sick leave mandate expired in September?
2: Yeah, we've seen either people going into work sick because they need to pay their bills and that has led to more of a spread of the virus. Um, In December, the state recorded 445 workplace outbreaks and the state public health department says even that's probably an undercount. So in effect, it, you know, uh, prolongs the labor shortage and it, it adds to the spread it causes more people to be out sick um, others have had to forego pay or leave their jobs those who have kids whose schools have had outbreaks They have needed to stay home sometimes multiple times. So the impact on workers who don't have the choice to work from home or have enough vacation or sick time to, you know, cushion this
5: has has been pretty profound. You mentioned this applies to companies with 26 or more employees. Now, this is obviously a big deal for those eligible for renewed coverage, but it seems like plenty of workers will be left out of these new protections. Is that the case?
2: It is the case in California, about 90% of companies have uh, under 26 employees. So that exemption does leave out about one in four workers in the state. At the same time, you know, these small businesses are the ones that can't really afford to take on that cost. So uh, that's kind of why this has been um, a while in the works to come to some kind of compromise that provides leave to some workers and um, tries not to put, you know, more small businesses um, out of business.
5: You know, we actually had a question from a listener who was curious as to why the new round of coverage will only be retroactive back to the beginning of the year since the last round of statewide COVID leave actually expired last September, Um, that would leave out three months of coverage. Do we know anything about why that is? Yeah that's a great question and the reason that the leave expired back in September was because it was
2: funded by a federal tax credit that is no longer available so it's taken some time for the state to come to a compromise with business groups for example about how to continue this leave that businesses will be funding but without you know hurting them further so the package actually includes different measures, such as small business grants, um, research and development tax credits, and it also um, opens up emergency relief funding for the governor to to provide uh, increased capacity for testing and vaccination efforts. So it's it's kind of a package meant to address the needs of, of a few different
5: groups and interests. In the time since the previous sick leave coverage expired, uh, we saw the Omicron surge peak across the country. How did that impact a workforce that was short on paid virus sick leave?
2: I think we saw two, two things happening. One was that you had people trying to power through because their livelihoods or their workplaces depended on them and they were, you know, continuing to work regardless of exposure. Um, And because for some people, the Omicron variant systems were less severe, it sort of impacted people's behavior differently than in the past. And as a result, that did create more danger for those who are still at high risk. Um, On the other hand, I think for a lot of people, especially those who don't have the ability to work remotely, um, the pandemic has been a real time of reflection about what work means? What are the risks? What are the benefits? And you know, for those who have a choice, how do they want to uh, spend their their time and their skill? So I think the impact on the labor shortage is that some people don't, you know, have the choice to to drop out of the workforce, but some are really rethinking uh, what they want to do and um, how they want to do it.
5: What new provisions have been made for employees under the new sick leave policy? So as we talked about, the paid leave is
2: retroactive to January 1st, and the law doesn't require employers to collect documentation for the retroactive leave, but it does give them the option. And it's broken up a bit this time where you can get 40 hours up front, but for the second set of 40, um, you do have to provide a positive test for yourself or
5: from someone in your family. And this has been a key priority of labor organizations in the state. What's been the response from them now that this has passed? Yeah, labor
2: groups have been satisfied that the legislature and the governor have heard the concerns that they've been expressing for months, you know, since before the prior leave expired in September. Um, in particular, some unions noted that a lot of frontline workers tend to be people of color. So it's this paid leave is one step to try and bridge that inequity between workers who have remote ability to work and a lot of paid sick time and vacation time and those who don't.
5: And any sense of how long this new coverage will last until? The coverage lasts until September 30th of this year to accommodate not just the current surge, which we're just starting to see subside, but in the event of future outbreaks as well. We mentioned earlier that Governor Newsom signed this law into effect today. So what's next? It will take ten days before the law goes into effect,
2: and um, not only will the paid sick leave bill go into effect, but it's part of a package of emergency relief for COVID that includes, you know, increased testing capacity, money to the State Department of Public Health, to the Department of Corrections to amp up testing, vaccine efforts, outreach, um, as well as the uh, small business grants and and tax credits in research and development for businesses. So. I think the hope is really to meet the needs of, you know,
5: various interests throughout the state. I've been speaking with Cal Matters reporter Samia Kamal. Samia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.
5: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Now we've hit a grim milestone of more than 80,000 Californians' lives lost to the COVID-19 virus. For the California Report, as part of a KQED series of remembrances of people who've died from COVID, we hear from the family of a farm worker who lived in Madera in the San Joaquin Valley. His granddaughter, Madi Bolaños, is a reporter with KVPR, the local NPR station in Fresno, and she brings us this tribute.
6: My grandpa's name was Tomas Reyes Soto, but we all called him Papi Tomas. He died in December 2020, a week before his 69th birthday. And since his death, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about his legacy and what his decisions meant for me and my future. I just feel this extreme sense of gratitude. My grandpa taught me the value of hard work, to have pride in my work, and that nothing was out of my reach. My grandpa was born in Pueblo Nuevo, Durango, Mexico, in 1951. And he started working at a very young age. At about 12, he started going to Sinaloa to work picking tomatoes. He did that every year for a while. And when he was 16, on a trip there, he met my grandma, Elisa Aguilar Cepeda. And she says he was very direct and very interested in her from the beginning.
7: Cuando él me conoció, fue y me dijo... (laughs)
6: He went up to her and said, (laughs) you're going to be my wife, Chaparita. (laughs) She (laughs) told him, you're crazy. (laughs) And that Saturday, he sent a mariachi (laughs) that played music from northern Mexico.
7: Hechicera, tú lo juiste, me el corazón.
6: And that's my grandma singing Hechicera by Antonio Aguilar.
7: Dime, pequeña hechicera, ¿qué cosa me hiciste para que te quiera?
6: After that, they married and had five kids together, and then shortly after that, they moved to Mexicali, which is a small town on the border of California and Mexico, and there he sold tacos. And his daughter, my mom, Monica, says some of her favorite memories are helping him cut the cabbage and tomatoes.
8: I just remember he used to make like the best tacos, the best flour tortilla tacos with the best salsas. He made, like, really good spicy salsas. That was his thing.
6: My grandma says my grandpa always had this bigger dream to move to the United States. He never went to school as a kid, and she says that he didn't want that for his kids. So in 1985, Papi Tomás took his wife and his kids through the desert to cross the border.
7: La idea de que sus hijos tenían que criarse en Estados Unidos y que iban a hacer lo mejor. Gracias a Dios. He had the
6: idea that his children had to grow up in the United States and that they were going to be the best there, she says. He was always proud of their accomplishments. And when their two oldest children graduated from university, she says he cried so hard. My mom Elicia says sometimes she felt like her kids loved their dad more than her because she had to be the strict one. But my mom remembers her dad being even
8: more strict than her mom. Especially when he came from a long day from work and we would see the truck and we would see the truck and we would run home, make sure that house was clean and everything was nice and tidy. And uh, because Papi Tomas was coming. He was coming home
6: from the fields where he picked garlic, olives, and oranges, and really all the crops in the Central Valley. And he did that for 40 years, but he wanted his kids to strive for more.
8: Uh, he would tell all of us, <laughs> you better pay attention in school or this will be your future. We'll do well in school. And uh, I, I took it literally, I wanted to get straight A's because I did not like working in the fields.
6: My papi Tomas's kids remember him as this tough love kind of dad, but that really changed when he became a grandfather. My mom had me at 20 years old, and she was a single mother, so many people told her she was making the wrong decision by keeping me, including my grandpa. But she was determined to prove him and everyone else wrong. She was going to be a successful single mom because her dad taught her to be hardworking and determined. So she started working at a bank, And now she works as a lending consultant. My grandpa would always say, a chambiar porque nacimos bonitos pero pobres, which means work hard because we were born good-looking but poor. And all in all, there were 15 of us grandchildren. My grandma says my grandpa would often count them.
7: (laughs) Se ponía a contarlos. Se ponía a contarlos cada rato y cuántos son.
6: So he started counting them, she says. Every few years, he'd say, how many are there now? And he'd name us, but not by our actual names, by the nicknames he'd give us. One of my cousins was Ravanito, which is Spanish for radish because he blushed easily. And another one was Nadador, which is swimmer in English because he was trying to swim in the tub at only six months old. And I was Moniquita Jr. Or his Madi Yupi. When I was a kid, he'd call and he'd say, "The Yupi, do you want me to pick you up from school today? In Spanish. And after class, I'd run out and I'd see him waiting for me in his pickup truck, wearing his jeans, button up shirt, hat, and his signature mustache, which he dyed black regularly uh, while the rest of his hair turned gray. <laughs> And uh, on one of those days, I remember we stopped at the gas station, and he called out to a woman on the street. He had told her, be careful, immigration agents are driving around the neighborhood. He was always looking out for his undocumented community. And for us grandkids.
9: Good morning. Feliz cumpleaños.
6: Happy birthday. My grandpa had all of his grandchildren's birthdays memorized, and he'd call us every year on our birthday. Here's the last voicemail he left me on my birthday in
9: 2020.
6: I could always count on my Papi Tomas. He taught me what unconditional love is. He was the second father to all of us grandchildren. And he was even a father figure to his niece and nephew, who didn't have a present father. When the pandemic started, my papi Tomas took it very seriously. He did have to go to work in the fields, though, but that's pretty much all he did. Uh, and then in late November, my mom, Licha contracted COVID from working as a housekeeper at the hospital. My papi Tomas took care of her, then... A week or so later, he contracted the virus, and so did my mom.
8: My body was in a lot of pain, and all I can think of, i like, I hope that my dad is not in the same pain that I am going through. And the next day, when we learned that he had passed away, it was painful, and, and it's still painful.
6: He had been sick for a few days, and my mom, Alicia tried convincing him to go to the hospital, but he didn't want to die alone. My mama Licha worked at the hospital so she told him she would check on him but he still said no. When he died, my mama Licha found him after working a night shift at the hospital. His kids and most of his grandkids showed up at the house shortly after hearing the news. Yeah, but we are right parked right there outside the driveway. This is my cousin Melanie. I remember the things so vividly. I remember uh,
2: I remember my mom screaming really loud and just like oh
6: no, no, no like you're lying. Like in Spanish she was like you're lying, you're lying. No, he's fine, he's fine. My puppy, the last passed away on December 13th, 2020. He died in his sleep on his side with his hands clasped together in front of him. For everyone, including my mom,
8: the grief is still very real. It doesn't feel like it's real and it's It's been a year and and a month. You never want to go through that pain that that your parents are gone, especially someone that you care so much.
6: A year before my grandpa died, I graduated college and got an internship in D.C., The day before I left, I went to visit him, and I told him how grateful I was for his sacrifices, for the values he instilled in my mom that she passed down to me, the values that allowed me to fly across the country to pursue my dream of becoming a reporter. We hugged and cried together, and later that day, my mom said he called her to tell her she did a good job raising me. I feel... Indebted to him and my mom for the sacrifices they made for me. I'm
5: just happy I was able to tell him that before he passed away. That was Mari Bolaños in Madeira.
1: Twenty twenty one was the deadliest year on record for migrants crossing the border according to Customs and Border Protection. In Imperial County, migrants continue to drown in the All-American Canal. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis explains why drownings are increasing and talks with people trying to do something about it.
10: Everything John Hunter thought he knew about illegal immigration changed when he went on a nighttime ride-along with Border Patrol agents in 2000. They used night vision goggles to spot a group of migrants on the U.S. side of the border. Hunter still remembers the rush when they moved in on
9: the group. We went down and busted him. Turned out there were six little ladies sitting there on the ground and they had their purses out. I'm going, I don't feel like such a stud. Here I am busting someone who looks like my my mother or my grandmother or my sister's cook. It's sort of, it's not like a manly thing to do, you know?
10: Hunter is a staunch Republican, the brother and uncle of former San Diego Congressman Duncan Hunter Sr. and Jr. Until that night, His image of people crossing illegally were bad hombres and macho muchachos as he calls them, but that's not what he saw. He saw poor people trying to survive, women and children fleeing violence. Soon after, he began leaving water bottles along the border's rugged mountains and treacherous desert. Then he focused his attention on the All-American Canal in Imperial County, where more than 550 migrants have drowned to death while trying to cross the border since at least the 1990s. He looked into who was drowning and found the same thing,
9: These are just ordinary people that drown crossing. These are not the cartels. These are not the guys you read about with the, you know, the macho muchachos. These are not. They're just ordinary people that can't make a living. They're trying to survive.
10: The All-American Canal is an 82-mile waterway that runs along the U.S. border as it carries water from the Colorado River to Southern California. It's managed by the Imperial Irrigation District. The canal is notoriously deadly for migrants trying to cross the border illegally. It's 200 feet wide and about 20 feet deep in some areas. CBP agent John Mendoza explains why the canal is deceptively dangerous.
9: A lot of the migrants don't know
2: the threats that the water has. What may appear to be calm on the top may not be so on the bottom. There's a lot of strong currents and undertows that can take someone very easily underneath um, the
10: water. In 2010, John and his wife Laura led efforts to install 1,000 safety buoys and ladders along the canal. It was an uphill battle. Some irrigation district board members and staff thought the safety measures would make it too easy for people to cross the border illegally. Former Irrigation District board member Michael Abadi supported Hunter's proposals, but he faced pushback from his own agency.
9: There was some arrogance on some of this uh, staff that said, "What are you, what are you going to do? Just build a bridge so they can come across?" So I said, not that's going to build a bridge, but it definitely wasn't meant to be the end of the road for a lot of people."
10: But then 60 Minutes came to town and did an expose on the canal deaths. After that, the Irrigation District agreed to install 103 buoys along the canal, one every half mile on the east side and one every mile on the west side. And the buoys made a difference. The number of drownings decreased. Border Patrol agents say the buoys actually helped them rescue migrants in the canal.
2: If we have to apprehend a group or we have to rescue a group of individuals that may be struggling in the water, we can use the buoy lines uh, as a reference.
10: The Irrigation District has not increased the number of safety buoys along the canal since 2010, and data shows that drowning deaths are increasing particularly along the western part of the canal that has fewer buoy lines. Irrigation district officials declined a KPBS interview request. A spokesperson says the agency has installed 40 warning signs along the canal in recent years. This is in addition to more than 1,300 signs that had already been installed. Still, 47 migrants have drowned in the canal since 2015, 14 of them last year. Hunter says it's time to add more buoys.
9: Right, the data indicates that they're drowning close to Mexicali or close to Winterhaven, where there aren't the buoys. And so, you know, that is it's pretty common sense, right? These are common sense things. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to make an estimate that it'll work.
10: Abadi agrees with Hunter, but he does not think the current irrigation board will prioritize this issue.
9: It's not acceptable. I mean, I think we can do better. I wish they'd do better. I mean, if you, they don't like the buoy system, i said say, well, try something else, but try something. They're not trying anything. And that's what's, uh, what's frustrating today.
1: Joining me is KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. And Gustavo, welcome.
10: Hello, Maureen. Thanks for having me.
1: People who want to cross the border, they must know the All-American Canal is dangerous to swim across. Why are so many still taking that route?
10: Well, Maureen, they do know it's dangerous uh, and they just choose to cross anyway, right? They cross because whatever violence they're fleeing from is worse than the canal or The lure of financial gain in the United States is worth the risk of crossing. And that's kind of something I went into in the the written part of the story, that the federal government's uh, border enforcement policy is based on deterrence, right? The theory is that if you make the border really, really dangerous to cross, no one will cross it. But experts I spoke with say that policy kind of ignores the economic and violence related factors that drive people to migration in the first place.
1: So we know the tragic death toll in trying to cross the canal, but apparently many people must still be successful in getting across. Is that right?
10: Yeah, yeah, that is right. There are far more uh, successes than failures. Um, We have data from Customs and Border Protection that shows uh, more than 100 migrants have been rescued along the canal over the last four years, which is more than double the number of migrants who have drowned in the canal. Uh, Now, it's important to note that success is A relative term, right? The people who are rescued by CBP are mostly arrested and sent back to Mexico. Uh, And experts say that they'll likely turn around, cross again, and run the risk of, of, of drowning. You know, maybe not through the canal, but if they cross, they can cross through the deserts or the mountains. And it goes back to this idea that the federal government is incentivizing people who cross illegally to take greater and greater risks.
1: Can you explain to us how the buoys save lives?
10: Yeah, they, I mean, the buoys save lives uh, by giving people something to grab onto, right? Uh, if you think about the canal, it's it's this big waterway as, as wide as 200 feet and as deep as 20 feet in some points. And it's constantly flowing westward. Along the way, there are several hydroelectric plants uh, that use that flow to generate energy. So the canal is constantly pulling swimmer towards those plants. Uh, the buoys give... The swimmers something to grab onto while as they're being pulled away, and uh, in addition to the buoys, there's also some ladders that people can use to to get out of there as well.
1: And then, so are the migrants usually saved by the border patrol?
10: It's hard to say. Like what usually happens, right? Whenever you're dealing with with uh, illegal crossings, the data is kind of uh, uh, scarce, just because you know by the very nature they're trying to evade uh, detection. But I, I think a lot of the rescues do use the buoys. You know, the Border Patrol agents say they use the buoys as references. Uh, people grab onto them. They get more time. So a lot of the times, uh, the Border Patrol will see migrants crossing through uh, cameras that they have, and a dispatcher will send somebody over there. Having something to hold on to gives them the time that they need for, for help to arrive.
1: So since the buoys seem to help the Border Patrol take some migrants into custody, has the CBP issued any opinion on increasing the number of buoys?
10: Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I mean, the Border Patrol has invested a lot on cameras, like I mentioned, on motion sensors, uh, training for their BoarStar team, which is the team that rescues lost and stranded migrants. But during my visit to the canal, uh, when I spoke to Border Patrol agents, they were asking me about the buoys, right? They didn't know when or why they were installed in the first place, or why one part of the canal has more buoys than the other, I I left with the impression that there wasn't much coordination on this issue between Border Patrol and the Imperial Irrigation District, which is the agency that uh, manages and operates the canal.
1: Now, installing the buoys and adding to them seems to be more of a political issue than a humanitarian one for many people. What is the argument against installing
10: more buoys? I know that back in 2010, the argument was that any safety measure would incentivize illegal border crossings by making it too easy. And critics of that argument uh, say that, like, we still have laws, right? People who cross illegally should still be caught, arrested, prosecuted. Uh, They just shouldn't die while they're trying to cross.
1: Are there any other methods being considered that could warn people away from the All-American Canal?
10: I know at one point uh, in 2010 when they were looking at the buoy issue, they did consider chaining off the entire canal, and it would probably be the most efficient method of stopping people from trying to swim across, but obviously it's also the most expensive one. And the buoys were seen as an effective and relatively affordable option. More recently, I know the Irrigation District has installed about 40 warning signs. Uh, This is in addition to more than 1,300 they've already installed.
1: Now, a former Imperial Irrigation District board member told you he's not optimistic about the current board taking any action to try to decrease drowning deaths in the canal. Why is he pessimistic about that?
10: Well, I think it comes down to lack of political will, right? That former board member is Michael Abadi. Uh, He says no one is really talking about this issue, not just in the irrigation district, but in the county right? It's just something that's become normal there. Like deaths are just something that happened in Imperial County. And if you look through the Irrigation District's website, you'll find very little to almost no information about drowning deaths, migrant crossings, or buoys. It, it's almost like it's hidden. Uh, so a body told me that the, the current board is more reactive, right? They're, they're unlikely to do something unless there's public outcry behind it.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you.
5: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. Tagate, Mexico-based artist Irma Sofia Poeter has had a much-celebrated career. She won the San Diego Art Prize in 2016 and has shown her work around the world. New Man, A Woman's Gaze, is her solo exhibition opening this weekend at Bread and Salt. And the pieces range from embroidered suits installed on mannequins to classical-looking tapestries. It's a study on gender and an imagining of a new form of masculinity. Irma Sophia Poeter recently spoke with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Here's their conversation.
11: So you began your career working in fashion design, and you studied fashion in university. How has it served as a stepping stone to other artistic practices?
7: Well, I studied a couple years of architecture first. And then after going to architecture, I took some classes and some courses in fashion, fashion merchandising, and fashion design. And that really resonated with me, the idea of creating clothing, because uh, when I was very small, I used to hear uh, stories of my grandmother and how she would make these beautiful dresses made out of this fabric they would find very inexpensive and she would create these beautiful garments you know and everybody was marveled about it so my mom used to tell me all these stories and for me fabric represented this uh, material that could do magic so uh, when I started doing uh, clothing that really resonated with what my creative inputs and what I wanted to take out So I was painting at the time, and then I was doing fashion both. But then I decided to work with fabric. I started incorporating fabric, not as fashion design, but incorporating fabric as a material. And that's how I started. That was in 1998 when I did my first textile piece that wasn't clothing.
11: So this exhibition, it's called New Man, A Woman's Gaze it takes on gender, specifically men, which is something we've seen in your work for a while. And in your artist statement, you're defining this hopeful new man as someone who, quote, blurs the violent gender binary. Can you tell us a little more about this?
7: A new man started with a pandemic. And when the pandemic started, you know, I started questioning my role as an artist, you know, if I wasn't able to do art, then what would I be doing, you know? And I started questioning also the infrastructure in which we live, you know, and, and how everything is so male orienting. And that's why, you know, the earth is in such a bad place because there isn't this balance, you know, between the feminine and the masculine. And a lot of my work has to do with that. So I started thinking about this and that's where the idea of new man came.
11: So I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of these works in New Man, A Woman's Gaze. Some of the imagery is a bit explicit. There's phalluses and the such, but they're all obscured in sculpture or with sequined cloth. And I'd love to hear about a few of these works and the way that you chose those materials.
7: Yeah, I chose a lot of sequence, a lot of beading, a lot of lace, a lot of soft colors, a lot of textures, because that is the language of women, I think, you know, that really attracts us, you know, fabric is a ephemeral material, it's something that you can handle it with your hands, you know, it's uh, very easy to work with. So I wanted to use that material to express the feminine side in men. It's an iconic art. You see this all the time. In all the pieces of new Man. the phallus is in repose. And the idea behind all this is that I think we as not only men, this society as a total, is really geared into being like very you know, doing things, you know, very gold already, just do this, your gold, your ambition, you have to be very focused. And I think that just by being just by, you know, having no agendas at all, just being yourself, just enjoying the moment in the present. So that is what I wanted to express with the fellas in this condition.
11: And so much is said about the man's gaze and how it's dictated generations of not just beauty standards, but art, societal structures, even policy, and there's something a bit playful about you turning it around to be the woman's gaze, but also still incredibly serious. So could you talk a little bit about what a woman's gaze means to you?
7: A woman's gaze is giving us the permission to look and to have that power of being able to look without shame, without inhibition, just with joy, you know, and all these materials are just emphasized this joy because it's a joyful experience. Uh, It's not castrating. There's no boundaries. It's just very open and very sensual and uh, very soft. So that's why I thought it was very important also, you know, putting that woman's gaze into the title of the show. First, it was only new men. But I said, you know, well, it doesn't have to do with sexual preferences. It doesn't have to do with sexual orientation or anything. That's why I wanted to kind of have that there.
11: And what role does art play in tackling gender constructs?
7: I think it has a really, really big role. Because you know you can have all these political policies, you have all these you know projects. They're up in the air, you know, of how things should be done or new ways of tackling you know situations. But with art, and sometimes you get a little bit put off because maybe it's too technical, maybe it's you know it's not on your radar, you can't understand it. But when you look at a piece of art that talks about something like a gender issue, you know, and it talks about it through beauty and it talks about it through art. And through colors and through textures and through all this you know it permeates into you on a very um, subliminal and very uh, and another level that it's understood in a, in a different way so I think art is very important in that sense it gives it another layer and another input that you can understand
11: and over the course of your career you have shown work around the world But the last few years have slowed everyone down. We've all been kept closer to home. What's it like emerging from this period to now show work at Bread and Salt in San Diego?
7: this opportunity has been wonderful. I've shown mainly in Mexico and in um, in Europe. And for one reason or another, you know, very few times in the United States, which I found it a little bit, you know, curious, but you know, I'm the kind of person that where my work takes me, that's where I go. And right now I'm very happy that I'm showing in San Diego at Bird and Salt. I think it's an incredible venue. And Isabel and Jim are two great people that I enjoyed not only working with them, but you know, spending time
11: with. Well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you.
5: Well, thank you, Julia. That was Takate artist Irma Sophia Poeter speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon Evans. Her exhibition, A New Man, A Woman's Gaze, opens at Bread and Salt on Saturday with a reception from 5 to 8 p.m.